Welcome to Chaos Theory Tales Askew. This is the first installment of the short story entitled Passage by A.A. Roberts. Old man time's a bitter son of a bitch and a thief to boot. He steals your health, cripples your friends, and takes your loved ones. In the end, he takes away what little strength you have left and hands you over to that other old bastard called death. I've never been one for graceful exits. I'm not going without a fight. It's amazing the inappropriate times the voyage that's been your life comes crashing down on you. Here I am in the house that death built, ready to stroll into the devil's playground, and all I can think about is how I got here. Any warrior who's worth a damn will tell you survival depends on fractions of seconds. I'm kneeling here among the corpses, wasting minutes. I guess I deserve a breather. They call us shadow walkers, that is the few people that know we even exist. We're way high up on the denial list. If we're caught or killed, they deny we exist. Who am I kidding? There's no getting caught, only horribly killed. There's probably no one in the world better trained than I am for this kind of work, but as I watch the lights play behind the door in front of me, I wonder if I'll make it out alive. I know who's behind that door. I've met him before, and there's no truer expression of evil. My life, my life, how did I get here? In 79, I was fighting world-class martial artists, and I was making a name for myself. I managed to hook up with three of the greatest masters of the time, and they afforded me a well-rounded career in both armed and non-armed combat. I was a badass headbanger full of piss and vinegar and ready to take on the world. Then Angelica ripped through my life. I know it's cliched, it's probably trite, I know it's been said a thousand times before, but it's always a woman, isn't it? I was fighting in Rome at the 83 World Invitationals. I was at the top of my form, and no one could stand up to my eclectic mix of martial arts and preternatural speed. I was a tornado of pain, and when I sucked you in, you were going down. Ah, the good old days. After my successful conclusion to the championship and another gold belt, Glenn Bouchard, my manager and dear friend, left me in Rome. He had another client to attend to and recommended I take a well-deserved rest. It was one of those brief interludes in my life where everything seemed to go right. I was relaxed, healthy, and at peace with the world. I was dining at an outdoor cafe near the Colosseum, sipping on my third glass of Chianti, and getting quietly tossed when Angelique walked by. Calling it a walk was like calling the Mona Lisa a drawing. Angelique didn't just move through the world, she drew it into her as she strolled by. You could not help but be captivated by the sheer poetry of her motion. It was like watching one of the great cats take down its prey, except in the end there was no death only an ensnared heart. Mine. Angelique Bellamoro was a study in perfection. The grace that was manifested in every move she made was executed by a body of voluptuous perfection. She had curves that inspired anyone with a drop of testosterone to trace those delicate lines in their mind's eye. You could not help but loop down the graceful arc of her neck and fall into the delicate crevasse of her bosom to finally lose yourself in the 
gentle rolling sea of her hips. She turned her head to me as she walked by and tranquilized me with her smile. Perfect raven black hair spilled over her shoulders and framed the face of an angel. Her parents named her well. Full ruby red lips held just the hint of a seductive pout. Smooth dark skin with a touch of olive was centered with a perfectly formed and petite nose. The dark wells of her eyes, which hinted at some long-forgotten Asian ancestry, rested on a perfectly sculpted cheek set high with regal bearing. In her presence, I knew what it meant to be a mere mortal. She entered the cafe where I dined, strolled through the interior of the restaurant, causing one waiter to drop a tray of glasses, and exited to the outdoor area where I sat. I watched transfixed by her movement, and then she sat down in front of me. I suppose a more sophisticated individual would have come up with some pithy compliment and a look to match. I did my best not to dribble. She relaxed back into the chair opposite me and motioned to an empty glass sitting next to the bottle of Chianti. Your glass looks so lonely, senor. I felt I must bring it company, she said in lightly accented English. Even her voice was perfect, with a provocative rhythm that hinted of music and seduction. I filled her lonely glass and attempted to keep my voice from quavering. I assure you, senora, that is not the only glass that is in need of company. A smile was her reply, and I was barely able to hand her the glass under the radiance of her presence. She took the wine with a perfectly sculpted hand. She stepped from the glass, never letting her gaze drift from me. I knew she was studying me, working me out in some fashion, and I felt like a puppy dog in the hands of his mistress. I saw you fight at the championship yesterday. You are American, yes? If I had ever doubted my career path before, in that moment her observation blew away all my apprehension. Yes, I am. This is my first trip to your country. I haven't had much of a chance to soak in its beauty. Until now. Another smile for the favor of a compliment, and I became happily numb. You are too kind, senor. There are much fairer sights in my beautiful country. I find that very hard to believe. Please, call me Adam. She took another sip of wine and studied me again. I am Angelique Bellamora. I am a student of the arts at the university. Angelique? Seraphim or cherubim? Oh, seraphim, most assuredly. At first, an expression of shock painted her ravaging face, which I found a little odd. This passed almost immediately, and then she laughed at my little joke. It was like wind chimes on a warm summer's eve. You tease me, Adam. I'm surprised you know of such things. Not all fighters are uneducated men. I've had a liberal arts education where I dabbled in learning non-traditional subjects. The study of angels. I smiled and replied knowingly, among other things. Why did you look so surprised when I mentioned the angels? My family has been enamored of this topic for decades, thus my name. My parents' villa is decorated with many icons and artifacts related to angels, she said with a smile, and then quickly switched topics back to me. So you are one of those poet warriors that's Japanese produced, see? I chuckled and replied, now it's you as being too kind. Maybe just observant. So have you had a chance to tour our beautiful country? Unfortunately not. So far I've been confined to Rome and its, shall we say, more combative places. She yielded yet another glowing smile and offered, Then you must let me be your guide. I will show you more than you could see on any commercial tour. It occurred to me that I must have done something really nice in a previous life. Of course I accepted, and for the next two weeks I knew I had found heaven. The days were spent strolling through the beauty of Rome and the Italian countryside, while the nights were spent exploring each other. I had discovered bliss.
Like all human beings, she had her peculiarities. She was obsessed with the concept of fate, and she often drew me into philosophical discussions on the nature of good and evil. Of course, her native intelligence and curiosity only deepened my feelings for her. I wanted nothing more than to spend my entire life with this woman. She'd grabbed the very core of my being and would not let go, nor did I want her to. Near the end of my two weeks, I was ready to call Glenn and tell him I needed at least another month. I'd been fighting for him for two years, and money was not an issue. I knew he wouldn't mind. We were at the end of the season, and I always done right by him. I knew something was wrong when Angelique didn't show up at my hotel that last morning. We had spent most of our nights and thus the mornings together. However, there were a couple days when she had to return to her own tiny apartment to see to her things and grab a change of clothes. The police have found her in an alley near the Coliseum not too far from my hotel. At first, I was a suspect, but the concierge had seen her leave by herself and several witnesses saw her go into the alley alone. They wouldn't let me identify her since I wasn't family, and I imagined also because I was a foreigner. I almost bashed some heads in over that one, but in the end I acquiesced. I was so devastated that there wasn't much fight left in me at that point anyway. From the peak of elation to the depths of despair all in two weeks, I dropped into an emotional well and didn't come out for a year. Glenn tried to pull me out, but he was a businessman first and he had to cut his losses. I went home to the States and bummed around for a while, living in cheap motels and picking up day jobs. I never really had a taste for drugs or alcohol, and it was a good thing. I'm sure if I had had an addictive personality, I would have ended up in an alley somewhere. They say time heals all wounds. That's bullshit. Like I said before, old man time is a son of a bitch, and he scarred me real good. I ended up going back to school, and I got a degree in computer science. I found that academics and physical exercise were great distractions. My pursuits kept me from dwelling on what I had lost. It was around that time that I made my first kill. I had no intention of getting involved in any vigilante crap, but fate had decided otherwise. My studies were being conducted at NYU, and sometimes I took to walking the streets late at night to clear my head. I was fighting another bout of depression lost in my memories of Angelique. My reverie was broken by the sound of a woman's distraught, muffled cry. I looked up just in time to see a pair of legs being dragged into an alley. I sprinted for the alleyway and rounded the corner to find blackness. Garbage lined the base of the buildings, and here and there feral eyes peered out of the gloom. I heard a muffled squeak and sprinted to the source. The would-be rapist spun and turned with a fistful of steel. Six inches of razor-sharp edge and a pinpoint sliced the air in warning. Back off, jack off. Senor, please help me. She looked to be in her mid-twenties and of Puerto Rican descent. She was attractive, and at the moment totally vulnerable. I would have helped her no matter what, but when she said Senor, the image of Angelique's prone body popped into my mind. I never saw her like that, but I have one hell of an imagination. I didn't bother responding to the punk's venom chatter. I flashed out a front kick and the knife spun away into the night air. The look on his face was priceless. He probably had 30 pounds on me, but he was slow as well as dim-witted. I tore him up with several blows to the face and throat. I kicked him in the groin and then the back of the knee. He went down on his knees in front of me. I grabbed him by the back of his head and by the chin and twisted. It was one of the most beautiful sounds I had ever heard. With a crack, he fell to the pavement and joined the rest of the trash. I felt much better. I helped the trembling woman up. She couldn't really see me in the dark, but I knew my rage and violence had frightened her. She squeaked out a terrified gracias and ran off into the night. I imagine that night was like a junkie's first taste. 
I got nothing but positive reinforcement for my actions. My depression left me. The damsel in distress was saved. The adrenaline rush fired me up, and I was sure that the world was a little cleaner place. Adam Willman walked into that alley. Someone else walked out. I took to strolling the streets at night with an eye for trouble. I didn't jump on every opportunity that presented itself. I really didn't want to get caught. Most of the time it was stick-ups and sexual predators, but every now and then I had the opportunity to take out a celebrity. The police were baffled when the crossword killer suddenly stopped massacring his victims, or when the Sunday Slayer simply disappeared back into the hell from whence he came. I knew where the bodies were, and I had made them pay in memory of their victims. My last brand name psycho was the Black Light Killer. He rocked my world on two different levels. He taught me a new name for evil, and he brought me into the world of the Shadow Walkers. The Black Light Killer got his name because he scrawled runes and bizarre symbols on his victims in fluorescent ink. These satanic writings were only visible under a UV light. The authorities found this all very strange, but figured it was just more nonsense from a twisted mind. I discovered his modus operandi was far more sinister than they possibly could have imagined. The newspapers never really caught on to me. I tried not to keep any sort of rhythm to my pursuits, and I was fastidious to the point of being anal in terms of not leaving any evidence. I'm pretty sure the police knew I was out there, but they were so overwhelmed with the day-to-day stuff that going after someone who was making their job a little easier must have seemed like a waste of time. That suited me fine. Back in 93, I did have one fan and a reporter by the name of Harry Stevens. There was a spate of rapes being perpetrated by three different individuals, and I made the mistake of taking them all out in one night. He figured out real quick only one person could have done this, and nicknamed me the Dark Guardian. I was the daily subject of his column there for a while, which caused me no end of headaches. I had to spend a lot more time being elusive. Fortunately, he worked at one of the tabloids, so no one took him too seriously. I got no small amount of amusement from his descriptions of my exploits. Being a tabloid reporter, he had to dress me up with strange mystic powers. He claimed I had a stare that caused my victim's blood to freeze right before I took them down. I have no powers. It's a phrase that I repeat to myself over and over again. I bleed, I break, I can die. Lack of humility is a surefire way to end up dead. I am the last hope of the hopeless. If I die, their one last chance is gone. It's necessary for me to remember that and to remember who I am. I have no powers, is my mantra. But boy, can I kick ass. The horror that was the black light killer revealed to me that there are creatures of power out there. Hell, I'm a technologist. My day job entailed working with computers, networks, and software. I didn't believe in any of that New Age crap or mysticism or healing vortexes or any of the other magical menageries propounded by self-described prophets. No, I was a cyberkin true to the core. Until that night on a hill in Connecticut under a full moon. Why do they always kidnap, mutilate, desecrate, and or torture women? You never hear about Mr. Universe being taken hostage by some crazed lunatic. It's always some poor, helpless girl. I suppose that's kind of a why-ask-why question. The police were getting nowhere with BLK, but then the cops didn't have the benefit of my collegiate background. As I had hinted to Angelique all those years ago, I had minored in a course of study that delved into the bizarre. In my youth, I was intrigued by ancient cults, black magic, sorcery, and the history behind man, myth, and religion. I didn't believe in any of it, but I found the subject fascinating. It was that background that allowed me to decipher BLK's leavings. 
I managed to get to one of his victims long before the police saw her. That was tough. Look on her face reinforced my desire to make this son of a bitch pay. Slowly. I lit her up with the black light and photographed the fluorescent scrawls on her naked corpse. It didn't take me long to figure out that these were passages from the Necronomicon. Now I knew I was in for a fun time. The Necronomicon, also known as the Book of the Dead, first showed up in modern literature as a plot device in the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. He wrote that it was penned by the mad Arab Abdul and scribed in human blood on human skin. I knew for a fact that this was true. Of course, academia all had a good laugh about such fancy and wrote this evil tome off as mere fiction. Too bad none of them did any research into the literature that came out of the Dark Ages. The Necronomicon was real, and its contents never should have been written. It was a collection of every black spell, curse, incantation, conjuration, and prayer of death ever spoken. Races that had consumed themselves by opening the very pits of hell had their methods documented in this book. Of course, the book had been lost in the annals of time. Most sane men hoped that some enterprising soul had burned it to ashes and thrown it those inside of a volcano. However, bits of its evil had been scrolled down in notes here and there and were referenced in other but less potent grimoires. It was my study of one of these in my youth that enabled me to identify the origins of what was penned on the poor lass's flesh. What I found entirely troublesome was the fact that these were completed passages. This led me to the ultimate, however improbable, conclusion that BLK had managed to get his hands on the original gore-formed manuscript. Ducky. It occurred to me that only a precious few knew that the Necronomicon really existed. It also occurred to me that in order to track down and obtain this tome, someone would have had to have had a lot of capital. Armed with this information, I started at the occult shops and worked my way up through the antique dealer's food chain. I finally landed at an antique shop in New Orleans. The owner of that store was the last one to possess the book, and he had sold it to a Wall Street broker by the name of Alexander Jennings. Fancy that. The latest financial wunderkin was a project of black magic and profound evil. Profound evils to be expected on Wall Street, but black magic is usually laughed off as superstitious nonsense. I was also shocked to discover that John Luke, the antiquities dealer, had scanned the entire Necronomicon onto his computer and was offering an electronic copy on eBay for 1995. For the price of a Ginsu and a Coromatic, you too could own a copy of the most evil musings ever to be put down on human skin. Like I said, ducky. I cross-referenced the photos I had taken of the dead girl's body with passages from the electronic copy of the Necronomicon and figured out what BLK was up to. He was invoking the spirit of none other than Cthulhu in order to obtain raw, dark power. What crap. This kid obviously had seen too many horror films, and now I had to clean up the mess. Thanks to Hollywood, I was going to have to do a PG-13 all over this punk's ass. Fortunately, the mad Arab scribbles were a roadmap to Alexander's plans, and although I didn't have a location for his next party, I certainly had a date. It had to be under a full moon. It always has to be under a full moon, because that's when the crazies come out. On the first night of the next full lunar event, I waited for him outside of his multi-million dollar apartment, and subsequently followed him to upstate Connecticut. He may have been one gangbuster of a necromancer, but he wasn't too sharp in the security department. I had no problem following him to the state park he had chosen for his nocturnal activity. I parked back on the road outside of the park so as to remain out of his sight. I caught up with him in the parking lot just as he was unloading his victim. He'd wrapped her in plastic tarps and cocooned the whole thing shut with duct tape. 
1,002 uses. With his victim over one shoulder and the Necronomicon under one arm, he headed up a path into the woods. I should have taken him out in the lot, but I guess I let my curiosity get the better of me. He was big. This wasn't any string-bean geeks sporting horn-rimmed glasses. Alexander had spent more than a few hours in the gym, and I was guessing he had 40 pounds of raw muscle on me. This was not going to be a cakewalk. I followed him through the woods that finally opened into a small clearing on a small hill. At the top of the hill was a massive rock slab, which was just the right height to serve as an altar. Some primal instinct in the core of my being told me that this rock had served blood duty before. He gently laid the young lady down on the granite slab and placed the Necronomicon near her head. He lovingly brushed her hair back from her forehead and whispered something in her ear. I was too far away to hear what he said, but I heard her whimper pathetically in reply. He drew a long, curved, ornate Chris knife from under his jacket. He held it up to the moonlight to inspect its razor edge, and the last whimpered again. He sliced open her plastic shroud and tossed it to the side along with the yards of duct tape. His victim was manacled underneath all that plastic, so she was not going anywhere. He flipped open his cookbook of evil to somewhere in the middle and ran a finger down one of those epidermal-formed pages. Yuck. He raised his blade to the full moon and began to chant in a tongue I did not want to hear. As I looked up the hill to see him form in silhouette against the immense full moon, I was struck by the raw beauty of the tableau set before me. That being said, it was time to take the son of a bitch down. Keep in mind that up until this point, I had been a diehard fan of logic and science. Everything else was bullshit. Imagine my surprise after having crept halfway up the hill when the moon suddenly turned blood red. The air began to move, not with the wind, but like it was being displaced by some unseen dark volume. A black mist began to ooze out of the base of the altar, and Alexander's eyes began to burn crimson. I froze like a little girl. For the first time in my life, I knew absolute terror, the kind that freezes your blood and turns your brain to lead. Cold sweat poured out from under my scalp, and my bladder started screaming for release. I was witness to the impossible, and it was about to roll over me and that little girl like a freight train straight out of hell. His blade dipped, and with a flurry of slashes, the young lady was disrobed and naked to the stars. In the distance, I heard the scream of something that wasn't quite human. It wasn't animal either, but whatever it was, was really big and getting closer. Alexander reached down and ripped the girl's adhesive gag off. She screamed in pain, and then screamed in terror. Brokerboy laughed and joined her in mocking tribute. That was a mistake. His mean-spirited parody knocked me out of my fear-induced trance. I was never one much for guns. When you want to stay unnoticed, silence is golden. However, I did have a nice short-length katana with a leather-bound hilt that I brought along for just such occasions. I unsheathed my bad boy and quietly made my way up the hill. I wasn't going to fool around with Alexander Evil. I was going to get behind him and take his pretty head off. As I flanked him, the roar of the unseen beast grew louder, as did the little girl's screams. Whatever it was, it was coming on like a jetliner. Its roars were everywhere, and I couldn't figure out what direction it was coming from. I got directly behind Jennings, midway up the hill, as he reached the climax of his incantation. He fairly screamed in the night sky in a booming voice that filled the clearing. I slipped on something and fell to my stomach. I recoiled in horror at the slime that now covered the small hill. I looked up and could see the nasty stuff oozing from the base of the altar along with the black mist. 
At that moment, a black hole, a vortex, opened in front of the altar, and the death cry of the beast issued forth. Alexander cried like he'd just climaxed, and the little girl froze with absolute terror. There must have been twenty barbed tentacles that spilled out of that hole and onto the altar. Far back in the void, maybe twenty yards or so, burned two red orbs of mythic proportion. The eyes of the beast were filled with a madness that mirrored that of its acolyte. The slime-coated appendages were lined with hooked bone claws that flexed in and out of leathery sheaths. They slipped over the little girl and caressed her terror-stricken form like some lost lover. Her eyes were as wide as saucers, and she obviously was barely able to breathe. Alexander laughed and screamed like a psycho with a new sex toy. I had never sparred with a demon before, never mind one of the star players from the pits of hell, but I was going to be damned if I was just going to sit there and watch this little girl get molested by some old slime lips. I sprinted up the hill dodging the rivulets of ooze and cocked my blade back for the killing blow. More tentacles spilled from the void and one snapped to point in my direction. Broker Boy was a little slow on the uptake and I was right behind him when he fully saw me. He tried to bring his blade up to parry my slash but it was a little too late. My katana flashed in the moonlight with its own razor edge and parted dear Alexander's head from the rest of his muscular and fashionably dressed body. The beasts from the void screamed in rage and launched a trichia of tentacles at me. Master Suzuki never taught me the defensive pattern for an octopus attack, but I improvised with lethal execution. It screamed even louder, having been parted from some of its many limbs. For my troubles, it issued forth more appendages and more slime. I dove too late and one of the flesh-covered slinkies, that size of a tree limb, raked my chest with its razor claws. I cried out in agony and lashed out it with my sword as another appendage made for my feet. Now I was pissed. I grabbed old Alexander's slime-smeared head and held it up for the beast. You want a sacrifice, Squishy? Here! I threw Wonderkid's head into the void and I heard it splat against something wet and leathery. I impaled my sword through the tentacle on the moist ground and in a fit of adrenaline rage threw the rest of Alex into the hell hole before me. The tentacle snatched the corpse out of the air and drew it back into the hole. I grabbed the young lady, turned, and sprinted down the hill. I made it two steps before I slipped in the slime-coated grass and pitched over to the muck to roll down the incline along with the young lady. We came to rest at the base of an oak tree. I heard the roar of an explosion. The black hole before the altar exploded up into the night sky in a gush of dark flame and black energy. In a rush of debris and arcane power, the void sealed itself back up and then was silent. Tomb silent. Dead silent. Only our labored breathing was evident. I was sprawled out on top of the poor young lady. She was very young, probably only sixteen. Underneath the slime and blood was probably a very pretty young girl who was going to need therapy for the rest of her adult life. I smiled, but I don't think she was impressed. Very impressive. I screamed like a little girl, rolled off the little girl, and jumped to my feet. Two men dressed in black suits watched my contortions with obvious amusement. One of them held the Necronomicon under an arm. They both wore black leather driving gloves and dark sunglasses. This struck me as very odd, seeing as it was after midnight. On closer inspection, I realized that this brunette pair of lean but muscular young men were identical twins. They kept their hair GQ smart, their suits pressed, and their black wingtips spotless. Call it intuition, but everything about these two screamed, Feds. The one on the right observed, You have shut down an apocalyptic event of mythic proportion. 
successfully beaten back a pseudo-etheric cephalopod of titanic energy, and have successfully rescued the intended victim. Bravo, intoned the one on the left. I wasn't exactly in the best of spirits, so I said rather pointedly, Who the fuck are you two? The one on the right smiled. We're shadow walkers. We need you to come with us, Mr. Willman. With that, the one on the left pulled out a trank gun and shot me in the chest. That's what I get for being vulgar. And that is the end of episode one of Passage by A.A. Roberts. If you enjoyed this story, you may find more at Chaos Theory Tales Askew, located at www.genspace.com, spelled G-E-N-S-P-A-C-E dot com. Just click the top eyeball. You'll know what I mean. The preceding story is copyrighted by Mr. Roberts and may not be reproduced in any form without express permission from the author. Thank you and good night.